Hey, everybody. Welcome to Like a Glove. This is Pat East, your host, the executive director of the Dimension Mill. And today we have Cy Minion, the entrepreneur in residence from Elevate Ventures. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Maybe let's start with telling the audience exactly what an entrepreneur in residence does and specifically what you do for our startups at the mill. I am specifically the entrepreneur in residence for a region called Velocities, which is part of a partnership with Bloomington, Indiana and Columbus, Indiana, and then venture capital firm called Elevate Ventures, which is actually where my paycheck comes from. In the other cities that I've lived, uh, which are Austin, the Bay and Seattle, there's a lot more companies that you can invest in, then there are people that are willing to write checks to those people. Here, I've found it's the exact opposite. So if a 10 is a perfectly slam dunk investment, I run into a lot of sixes and sevens. And my job is to close that delta between seven and 10. So meet the entrepreneur wherever they are, whether that's they need help with their pitch deck, they need help with the pitch itself, hooking them up with resources or, or my network, whatever the case may be. So the way I describe you to folks that don't know what an entrepreneur residence is, is I always say you're a full-time mentor. You help them build their companies, you help market, uh, help them figure out marketing, you help them sell, do customer interviews. Well, you actually won't do the customer interviews, but you'll teach them how to do those things so they can do them for themselves. Is that exactly? That that's, a, that's a great way to put it, actually. Yeah. And I know from our previous conversations, you've said that outwardly, it looks like our startups need funding, but inwardly, they really need product market fit. So maybe first, can you tell us what your definition of product market fit is? And then just talk a little bit more about, you know, the startups who think they need funding, but it's really product market fit that they need to focus on. So product market fit means a whole lot to different people. <laughs> it does. Um, so I think that's probably great that you actually define it based on who's speaking. My initial thought would be to say you find product market fit or you know you have it. When you're no longer selling your product, people are buying your product. So they're finding you. You're solving a problem so big that they're willing to find you and buy your product, not the other way around. You're not doing this huge ad campaign or, or trying to push your product down their throat. They're actively finding you. Great. So maybe instead of having to push everything out or having to do outbound sales, it's more folks coming to you via referral, word of mouth, because your existing customers are telling other folks about it because it's it's such a good, not just that it's such a good product, it hits all their pain points well enough that they want to tell other people about how great this thing is so that they can have that product solve their problems too. Exactly. You kind of have that raving fan base. Yeah. I like to ask companies, what do you uniquely offer that customers want that really helps you describe exactly what it is you're solving? Great. And so for our startups, you know, a lot of them say they need funding, but after working with our startups um, pretty intimately for the last six months or so, you feel like they need better product market fit. And so what do you think that disconnect is between what the startups think they need and what you think they need? I think, and myself included, I was an entrepreneur for 20 years. We're so readily available to go get funding because it solves so many problems instead of actually digging deep and going, okay, well, let's find that product market fit first and then basically take money or gasoline to throw on the fire. Mm -hmm. So people are already buying it. And as an investor or an entrepreneur, I would much rather give money to a company that if I give you X amount of dollars, I'm going to get X times 10 right. back out uh, because you've already figured out what sells, what doesn't, how to sell it, who wants it. That's a much better position for everybody to be in. 
And so once you are raising capital, definitely investors don't want to give you money to figure stuff out. They want to give you money once you've figured it out or largely figured it out, and they want you to go faster. And so definitely getting to product market fit is going to help help make the process of fundraising a lot easier. You know, one of the things I wonder about startups is, do folks think they need to raise capital because that really does solve, I mean, well, it does solve a lot of problems, but like, is that their main problem? Or do they just not know what the next step is, right? Do they not know enough about how to build a company that they just kind of default to, I need to raise money because that's what a lot of people do? Or is there something else in there that that you think kind of prevents them from taking steps to find product market fit? I think you're absolutely right that the taking money actually masks that problem. So it doesn't actually solve it. It just, like I said, masks it. So if you have money to spend on a pay-per-click campaign, that's awesome. I brought in 20 new users, but if 12 of them left, yeah, at the end of the month, I have eight more users than I did, but I have 50% churn. You've got a big hole in your That funnel. is not yep. sustainable. They call that the leaky bucket. So you keep putting them back in, but more are leaving. So you really have to figure that out. But if you have the money to, to burn, then it takes you a lot longer to figure that out. Sure, of course. And so part of the, you know, part of what we want to explore in this podcast in general, but uh, maybe dive a little bit deeper on this first episode is, is the market size and the total, total addressable market. And I wonder if sometimes folks don't default to raising money because that initial addressable market that they want to go after is too big. You obviously always want to have a large market, but that beachhead market maybe is too big. And they're, the startup is trying to do too many things to for too many people. And so maybe could you just talk about, in general, some things you've seen startups do that are that are good in terms of kind of addressing their their initial beachhead market? Have you seen startups go after markets that are too big initially? Have you seen folks that uh, go after markets that are too small? Kind of what's that right balance for for folks initially? Sure. You know, I've seen a little bit of a little bit of everything on that. On the beachhead market, I don't think it's necessarily that you're trying to be all things to all people, although that's horrible as well, especially when it comes to product market fit. I think it's your, if you're trying to be that many things to that many people, you're never going to get a concise answer. You're never going to start seeing uh, or hearing the same things over and over. And that's what you want to find product market fit. So you have to first find product user fit. So if you have a problem well, who are the people that have that problem? Um, and not just, you know, I don't have enough money. It's, I don't have enough money because X, Y, Z. So it has to be a very specific problem. And then find that target audience and ask those people, what are your problems? Uh, That's a really good point. So maybe one way to think about product market fit isn't necessarily product market fit, but it's product user fit. And so... Whenever you are going after your initial market, how do you decide who's the ideal user for your product? Or do you just have to kind of randomly bump into it at some point? Or is there a way to kind of scientifically go about figuring who that user is? I think that depends on who you talk to. There's a lot of investors that won't invest in a company that sat around with a notebook and said, okay, let's think about problems. And okay, here's 20 problems we thought of. What one's the worst one? And then let's try to tackle that. Typically, I'm not saying nobody will invest in that because people sure, do it people every, do every all day, the time. Yeah. All, the, all the time. But what an investor would rather see is have somebody that actually had that problem themselves or it naturally came to them. 
So I'm in this industry. I'm a domain expert in whatever it is. And I keep seeing the same problem. I have friends, I have colleagues, they all have the same problem. And then maybe they're not even an entrepreneur. You know, a lot of those people weren't business majors at all. They happen to be in opera or plumbing or whatever. Uh, They're a domain expert in whatever it is that they're doing and just saw that problem and wanted to solve it. Gotcha. So really the place to start is yourself or really close friends where you understand the problem so deeply you don't necessarily have to, at least initially, do a lot of customer interviews. Of course, you should mm-hmm. to kind of validate your idea before you go widespread to the market. But initially, what I hear you saying is you really need to understand the problem yourself well enough where you're really acting as your own focus group. Is that right? Exactly. Gotcha. And so once you are kind of your own focus group and you understand a problem well enough, is the next step to do a bunch of customer interviews or or what's the next step after that once you've kind of once you to figure out product market fit sure launch early and often you know i think there's a lot of people that that say okay well i'm going to have a product launch so i have this company and i'm building it and 6 months later i'm going to have this launch and it's a one time thing that's the wrong attitude to have launch all the time you know you you fix a problem in your software launch again it doesn't have to be a big party. You know, this isn't uh, the 90s, if anybody listening to this remember, <laughs> remembers the 90s. You know, you'd spend $100,000 on a launch party back then. Now it's, no, you, you launch it and you get it in the press and, and you fix it. So you're constantly iterating on it uh, and relaunching. And so talk about that a little bit more. What do you mean by launch over and over again? Is it Truly, you're relaunching the the introduction, the, you're relaunching the company and kind of treating it as a brand new product that's entering the market every time? Or is it just more of a mindset that you're fixing problems, but you're really not launching the company in terms of kind of a PR blitz or, or a launch party? Mm-hmm. So it's probably a bit of a misnomer to, mm-hmm. to call it a launch. But yes, absolutely. You're essentially putting a new product in the market every single time because you fixed something or you're going after a different segment of the market. Or to your point earlier, your beachhead was too big to start with. You know, well, let's take a sub-segment of that beachhead and go after those people. That's a relaunch. Um, You're repositioning the way you're positioning your product. That's a really good point. So you are essentially launching the company again, launching your product again, but you're not launching it to the same people because if you are doing your customer interviews and you figured, hey, I'm either solving the wrong problem or it's the right problem, but for the wrong people, you're really relaunching the product to a brand new audience at that Mm -hmm. point, right? Exactly. Or maybe even a different medium. You know, the first time you launched on Hacker News and maybe let's try product hunt this time or pay-per-click campaign or whatever medium you're using to get your name out there. Maybe that's what was, you're essentially just trying a bunch of different things until you find one that works. You have a recipe to start with, and here's exactly, I followed it to the T, but you know what, maybe I need to add more sugar, or I added too much of this, or you know the temperature was different. So whatever little variable you're trying, eventually you're gonna bump into, mm-hmm. uh, as you said, what works. That's a great way to think about building a startup as almost a recipe, right? Mm-hmm. So you know if you're making tea, you obviously have water, the tea itself, maybe sugar, honey, lemon, but you've got all different types of honey. You've got all different types of 
types of tea, right? You can steep it for a long time. You can steep it for not very long. And so every, every little nuance matters. And I really like that analogy in terms of uh, applying that to startups. That's a good one. Yeah. So tell me, um, where have you seen some really great examples of product market fit in the startup world in general, or maybe with some Bloomington companies? Sure. You know, I think all successful companies eventually find what that product market fit is. It, I mean, if you don't, you die. So you kind of have, have to, to figure it out yeah. um, at least somewhat. I think companies like Slack really found great product market fit. Um, they started as a gaming company called Glitch, and it was a horrible game. It was based on Flash, so it was bound to die. <laughs> but everybody absolutely loved the messaging within the game. So you know what? Hey, if people are hacking your product to use it for something else, you should probably pay attention to that and go after that as a market. You know, I'm not familiar, completely familiar with the story about Slack and how they started. Do you know how they actually made the pivot to going from more of a gaming company flash interface mm -hmm. to more of the version that we see today that's, you know, an online chat, has bots and does all kinds of kind of rote tasks for you? Do you know yeah. how that, that transition happened? The game literally died like 2012, I think. And shortly after they relaunched as Slack itself with an amazing team. So that obviously helps. But that was the part that everybody liked. I mean, there was no shortage of messaging apps. You know, HipChat, who actually Slack bought Slack HipChat. Bought, yep. There was iMessage. There was Yahoo Messenger. There was AOL Messenger. Like, it's been around forever. But what people really liked about it in the game was exactly that, as you had the bots, you had the ability to talk to people in certain channels, add people to it, add not put people in different ones and kind of have permissions around it. And when people started using a business tool in a gaming setting, that's something you should probably pay attention to. And so in this example, I mean, it's really illustrative for kind of how we can think about our own businesses. If your product is you intend for your users to use it one way, but your users are using it in another, you should maybe not resist that is what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. And maybe at least in the case of Slack, you need to double down on that and say, hey, this is something our users are really asking for. Who cares if we came up with a game? That's something we wanted to do. But if they don't want to do that, then truly, who cares? Yeah. Uh, not your customers, right? And so figuring out how to double down on the stuff that works is obviously really important. But in this case, it created a brand new company. Yeah, exactly. And as a matter of fact, it doesn't even have to be within the same company. If you think about the history of, of streaming music, it was the same thing. They were essentially trying to find product market fit with Napster or any of the peer-to-peer the -peer networking, when digital music came out, it was all free. Mm -hmm. It took Spotify to really say, okay, well, let's find product market fit not only for our consumers, but also the legality behind it. And right. how do we make this a sustainable business, not just something that somebody wants and, and is somebody willing to pay for that? And they did it. And so Napster really kind of broke the business model for music back in the 90s, another mm -hmm. 90s reference. LimeWire, mm -hmm. um, if and anybody remembers that one. Kazaa or Kazaa, Kaza. oh my gosh, yeah, yeah, that came out. And and now we have the you know current versions of Pandora and Spotify, and that's led to really a big revolution in music. So, you know, in that case, it wasn't just, was it just a product saying, okay, we have really great product market fit. It was a product saying, hey, the market's kind of completely broken in how people consume 
music. And so that Napster obviously started that revolution in music and helped change it completely. Mm-hmm. On the opposite end of the spectrum, obviously, if companies have great product market fit and really all successful companies need to get there, otherwise they're going to die. Maybe let's talk about what are some of the signs that you have bad product market fit? And obviously, you're going to kind of have some lagging indicators of, oh, we don't have any revenue or we have lots of really horrible churn. But maybe what are some things that startups or founders can figure out ahead of those things, some leading indicators that might tell us we have bad product market fit. Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate you not asking for specific examples of crappy companies, because uh, I, w- <laughs> I would have had to use my own. But knowing you don't have product market fit, it's one of those things you kind of, you feel it. But thing, there are specific <laughs> things you can look for. So if the sales cycle is taking too long, if people aren't finding you by word of mouth, If you don't have repeat sales or they come back once, if you have a lot of churn, Mm -hmm. uh, those types of things will will tell you that you don't have product market. Gotcha. Okay, so there are some leading indicators in there. I really like the sales cycle is too long. How do you know that the sales cycle is too long and it's not just this is how long it's going to take? It's not necessarily long or short. It just is what it is. How do you know if your sales cycle is too long? I think you do know. I mean, there's certain arenas where there's just a long sales cycle. You know, maybe you are selling to a school system and they only come up for budget once a year. You probably have an 18-month sales cycle because you have to be in there before they even get to the budget, let alone before they pay you. So you'll know if it's a industry thing Mm -hmm. that is making it a long sales cycle or maybe you're just talking to the wrong person. You know, yeah. maybe you're going in and you're you're talking to purchasing, but it's an IT product, and then you have to talk to the security team and the IT team and the all of these different things in a corporate person. So maybe you're just talking to the wrong purchasing person. Mm-hmm. You really start to figure that out. Like if you're going in trying to do it one way, but then even after you sell that person, you have to go talk to five more people. That's kind of an indicator that your sales cycle is too long. Sure. So maybe one way to think about it is not necessarily a long sales cycle, but longer than the industry average for the sales cycle. Because in the example you gave, right, like if it takes me a year to get into a school because they have annual budgets and school starts and you're not planning at that point. Yeah, that a year seems like a reasonable amount of time. But if I'm selling to a small business, maybe a year is way too long. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you're talking to somebody and they don't necessarily understand the value of your product and you find yourself over and over and over selling them instead of them buying, that's also an indicator. You're either talking to the wrong person, they don't understand your problem, or they don't have that problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, All indicators of of bad product market fit. And you brought up again, which is, I think we're going to see some recurring themes as we (laughs) keep talking about product market fit. You talked about hey, maybe you're talking to the wrong person, which kind of indicates that maybe you do have product market, wrong, bad product market fit because you thought your audience was person A, but it's really person B. And so if you have to keep going, if the sales cycle is long because you keep going after the wrong person, and it's just taking a long time to talk to all those people and find the right person, maybe that is a a leading indicator of bad product market fit. Mm -hmm. Or user fit. One of uh, our past companies, we, it was Prep Flash, and we automatically created flashcards using NLP and AI. Initially, we were selling to students. Well, that's a crappy market because they don't have any money. <laughs> they probably don't even want it. So we were just selling to the wrong people. You know, you either need to sell to the teacher or the parent, one or the other, but not the student. Mm-hmm. So. Great. 
Let's maybe have one more question and we'll, we'll wrap up the interview. In your mind, what's the single biggest thing folks can do to get better product market fit, right? There's not necessarily going to be a magic bullet that folks have, but if you could tell in general the audience, what's the one big thing they should do? What do you think that thing is? Absolutely. 100% talk to your customers. Whoever you figure out that customer is, talk to them and listen to their problems, not their solutions, but their problems. You're going to start hearing over and over and over, you know, I run into this with purchasing or I do this or I do that. Or if I could just solve this one thing, that's what you really need to listen to. The Steve Jobs quote about Henry Ford, where he said, you know, if if Henry Ford would have listened to market research, then he would have given them faster horses, not a car. That's exactly what you need. So who cares what they want? Give them whatever they need to fix their problem. Right. And the the best way to do that, uh, to figure out what they actually need is to listen to them. But they're not product managers. They're not they're not developing products. And so as a customer, they don't necessarily know what they need. If somebody doesn't know that a car can exist, they're of, of course they're going to say, I need a faster horse. And so really you need to interview them and interpret, kind of translate what your customer's saying and then figure out how that applies to your product. Yeah, exactly. Nobody buys a uh, half-inch drill bit. They want a half-inch hole in their wall. Yep, <laughs> you got it. You got it. All right, that does it for the first episode of Like a Glove. I appreciate you being on, Cy. Thank you for coming on, being our first guest. If folks want to try to reach you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Probably through the Velocities website or Elevate Ventures website. And or at the if you're at the mill in Bloomington or the Chamber of Commerce in Columbus, Indiana. All right, that sounds great. And an email address, maybe they can reach you out. Yeah, but it's super hard to spell, so we'll do it anyway. <laughs> it's C Minion M E G N I N at elevateventures.com. All right, thanks again, Simon. We appreciate it. Thank you. Like a Glove is a production of The Mill, a co-working and business incubator space in Bloomington, Indiana. Our mission is to launch and accelerate high-potential companies, and our vision is to become the center of co-working and entrepreneurship in Indiana. You can learn more about The Mill at dimensionmill.org. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check back every other Monday for new episodes.